Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Elizabeth and I met several years ago volunteering together at the YWCA of New York City. I was immediately drawn in by her passion for service and smart, thoughtful contributions to our strategic planning. This week, I get to share her thoughtful strategies with you as she talks about her current work and planning for New York City and beyond. Elizabeth Angelis is currently the Senior Director of Advocacy at the United Way of New York City, a nonprofit organization that fights for the health, education, and financial stability of every New Yorker. Prior to this work, in her role at the Clinton Foundation, Elizabeth developed new initiatives to support disaster recovery and long-term resilience in the Caribbean. She was previously a founding member of the Strategy and Program Development Team at NYC Emergency Management. During her time with the agency, she developed partnerships with organizations that serve people with disabilities, designed programs to support community emergency planning, and implemented parts of the agency's first strategic plan. Elizabeth serves as a founding trustee at Bold Charter School, a new elementary school in the Bronx. She is also currently an adjunct assistant professor of public service at New York University. Elizabeth holds a BA in economics and linguistics from Columbia University and an MPA from New York University. Hi, Catherine, thank you for having me. Okay, so there is so much for us to talk about and I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions, but first what I wanna start with for those of us who aren't in your field, how do you define an emergency or a crisis? And then second, what is the answer? We know the most vulnerable are the most affected, but who are those demographics? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. I think, how do you define an emergency? I think it's for us to collectively sort of figure out. There's the policy piece, right? Which is, you know, what, the, what it takes to declare a federal disaster, federal emergency, and every municipality has their own sort of thresholds or what we call the triggers. So there is the purely technical term that we have decided this is when we activate our troops, right? This is when we activate our essential workers. Um, this is when we activate the folks that need to sort of step up because we've declared this to be a, an emergency. And there are all different kinds of emergencies, as we know, you know, most recently health and pandemic. But the term of essential worker was always something we talked about in the, the emergency management space. Um, but I would challenge us to think about what is an emergency. Is the number of homeless people in New York City right now an emergency, right? We've never declared that. But there are, I believe it's one in every hundred babies born in New York City goes home to a homeless shelter. Mm. Um, you know, that's think about your high school class, right? If you had a hundred, is that okay? Is that normal? The fact that people work 40 hours a week and still have to wait in line for a soup kitchen or food pantry to get a meal, is that an emergency? So I think we need to figure out when do we deploy resources and what we don't necessarily get media coverage for or call an emergency in the technical sense doesn't mean that some people are experiencing crisis every single day, right? 
So I think it's an important question. You've been in very elite spaces, whether it was, you know, with your high school, being at Columbia, then going into financial services, and you have chosen to, you know, literally be among the people. Talk to us about how you grapple with that. It's, it's very noble, but it's also, I'm sure, very complicated. Yeah, Catherine, I consider myself, you know, I've been afforded the opportunity to be in very privileged spaces. And I, too, have been, you know, offered a lot of privilege. I would say that, you know, access to higher education, I consider that a privilege. And I think I know myself, I know what my values are, and I know that I need to use my privilege for good. I know that there are way too many of my fellow um, colleagues and students and people who have been, who I grew up with, who just weren't afforded the same opportunities that I was. And I think that's not to say that we all work hard, you know, to get to where we are. I think that's important work ethic and, you know, dreaming and, and accomplishing our goals. But I think too often we are so excited about and proud of and connected to stories of exceptions and exceptional people, because it allows us to say, well, if this person could do it, so can you. And I think that is great. I think we do have to applaud exceptional people. Um, but I also think we need to look at the bigger trends and we need to figure out who's not in the room and why. And we need to acknowledge when as a society, we need to do more. Mm -hmm. um, and so my charge and my personal connection to the spaces that I've, that I've been in is how do I use that privilege to bring more people along? Terms like advocacy, systemic change, these are huge terms that can mean so many different things. And I wanna bring it back to the development world where our field has, taken a closer look at inclusion, just like hopefully every other field. And we're thinking about how we can advocate for our colleagues of color and how we can make real change and systemic change in the ways that we work with donors, in the ways that we hire. I know that you aren't in our field, but could you share some best practices as a professional that you think we should consider as we do this work and educate ourselves? The work of development is so important. You're helping bring the resources to people that need it in many ways in different capacities. Part of the work that we have to do is remember that, and I think about this a lot in philanthropy because I've spent some time, you know, working with philanthropic organizations and within them and some of it is about realizing that you can fund things even if you don't have it all figured out um, I think you know I've heard uh, I believe Westmore Robin Hood has said funding is learning and the idea that you need to sort of know exactly what you're going to get out of what you're funding is important but we have to let go a little bit of like thinking about things in the terms that we've traditionally done it. And I say that because oftentimes in my work in Puerto Rico and even my work here at the United Way of New York City, 
Um, and even at my work in emergency management, when you talk to leaders and communities, and some people wouldn't even call themselves leaders, they're just doing the thing. They're just helping their community, right? They're just babysitting the children for a couple of hours and providing them a puzzle or activities. And they may not call that an after school program, but maybe that's what they're doing, right? Or um, the women who were feeding you know, their community and, and operating kitchens to make sure that everyone in their community was fed in Puerto Rico when there was no electricity and people were left, you know, hungry and, and lacking water. Like people are doing the work. And I think that we need to be open to listening to community and be open to knowing that we may not have it all figured out before we are willing to fund. So I think that's very important. I think making sure that development folks have access to hearing the stories, right? Because often development folks are trying to tell the story to donors about why the work is so important and why the work is critical. And so I do think finding ways to make sure that you and your development colleagues are armed with the stories. Um, and often that takes education, right? Like. Yeah, that's huge. Being close to the work and really speaking to the people we're serving. Yes. And maybe it's asking your organizations for more resources so that you can connect to the stories or breaking down silos between development and the people closest to communities, you know, um, making space for more conversations about reaching out to your colleagues who are working with community members to say, what are you hearing on the ground? What are people struggling with? So you can tell the story and you can also be an advocate for the people that need the funds, which you're, which you're doing all the time. You know, it feels so good to give someone a meal, but we have to ask ourselves, why does that person need a meal in the first place, right? Why is that person who's working 40 hours a week have to stand in line for this meal? Um, or often, you know, a book, right? There's a lot of book drives during the holidays, you know, so that young people have access to books. Well, why aren't schools, you know, equipped with libraries that students can pick their own books? So I think we have to start to ask, how are we actually funding, addressing the conditions under which people are living? When we talk about advocacy, often people think about sort of the activist and like organizations get a little worried about, you know, are, are we going to be like standing outside and protesting and, you know, and that's one type of advocacy, but the other type of advocacy is educating and bringing people along. That's advocacy as well. And I'll say organizations can be very powerful voices. And if organizations can also get used to lending their name to a cause or an issue, that can be very important too. And we've started to see that a little bit last summer, you know, with Black Lives Matter, but I know a lot of organizations weren't quite sure about what that meant. And okay, what do you do now? But I do think in addition to dollars and funding more flexibly, I think thinking about how organizations can use their name for causes can be important as well. And that doesn't take dollars, right? It takes courage. Definitely. And especially with big places that have been around a long time, that can be very scary for those organizations. So tell us what systemic changes that you are working on 
in your day job, which is at United Way. But then I'm also going to add to that, Elizabeth does not just work at United Way. She's also a founding member of the Bold Charter School, which we're going to talk about. But let's first start with United Way and your short-term charge right now. Yes. Well, it is uh, a big task, um, but we actually do a lot of programmatic work in a couple of areas. Now, our systemic change work, we're really trying to build across these areas. So, right, it's one thing to run a program and support the people struggling now. But again, just to ground everyone, the goal is to support the people now, but also pave way for a better future. Two big areas and flagship areas where United Way um, is really focused on is in education equity and food access, right? Addressing food insecurity. Um, and that, you know, you may have heard the term food justice or food sovereignty. The idea that people should have access to healthy, nutritious, affordable food and education equity. You know, education equity, people send their children to school and like don't necessarily realize what they're entitled to, right? What should your child be learning and at what level? And we know there's a disparity and we know that the COVID learning loss is huge, right? We saw that people do not have, did not have equitable access to Wi-Fi um, devices and it took so much time to get that up to speed. So at United Way, we're focused on really addressing summer and how can we use the summer to make sure to close the gap and make sure this summer doesn't go to waste as well as looking forward, right? Um, New York State actually started a process by which uh, we were looking at how, what do students need to, to graduate? What requirements should New York State uh, have for high school graduation? And United Way was a part of the conversation really helping to inform some of that guidance. And that's, the COVID disrupted some of that process, but there are a lot of opportunities for folks to lend their voice to this conversation. I think that business has a huge role to play there, right? When we have the connection between education and workforce, but education goes beyond workforce, right? Education is not just about preparing uh, students for work. Otherwise we wouldn't take a poetry class, right? Um, but it's really about creating fundamental learning and a right. And so at United Way, we're looking at everything from educational equity, from early learning opportunities, because we know child development um, and the brain, we know all the science around how important early learning is, to college and career readiness. Um, and then on the food front, really making sure that public uh, programs, such as what were formerly known as food stamps, um, but now known as SNAP or the Supp Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that programs like that are accessible. Uh, a lot of folks don't know how that they're eligible for SNAP. And this is a huge way for people to access food and buy food that is, you know, culturally relevant, right? People want to buy food that they are comfortable eating and it helps support our local economy. People don't realize that for every dollar invested in SNAP, we get about a dollar eighty in economic activity back, especially during downturns like this. So the, co the recent COVID stimulus package that was passed includes an extension for um, updated SNAP benefits, but 
we do think that you know public programs like SNAP are important to making sure that people can afford their basic needs. And then beyond that, we're really trying to pave the way for economic mobility. Education is a huge part of that. Folks may not be aware, at United Way of New York City, we support and, and uh, support a lot of emergency food programs, so your food pantry, soup kitchens. And I mean, there's a lot of research out there, um, and, and, and there was significant news coverage about this, but the demand for emergency food surged. It was already a growing demand before the pandemic, but up to 2 million New Yorkers are considered food insecure. And various polls um, showed that a lot of parents of young children and toddlers were skipping or reducing their own meals in order to feed their children. And this is a huge problem. This is a huge problem. It affects, you know, brain development. It affects learning when you talk about, you know, the connection to education. And so all of these issues are interconnected. And I think it's really important for us to stay informed. How many of us know that, you know? And I think we need to I know, remember I'm learning that. so much right now. I, I didn't know any of this actually, personally. Yeah, and I, it's really important for us to know this because we will see the trickle effects, the impacts of this if we don't address it now. And a lot of food organizations are run by volunteers. And there was such a huge shortage of volunteers, you know, in the middle of the COVID crisis in particular, because a lot of those folks are older adults as well, who are particularly um, high risk. And so with the shortage of volunteers, you know, uh, lack of really robust infrastructure, there were a lot of gaps. Um, and with the gaps, and then the surge in need, it's a huge crisis. Yeah. Well, tell us about Bold Charter. This is so exciting. Yeah, so I am a proud resident of the Bronx. So I have to give my Lower East Side some love because I was born and raised on the Lower East Side, but now reside in the Bronx. And I am a founding member of Bold Charter School which is a elementary school. We are in its second year of operation. And I was part of the team that uh, helped apply for and secure the charter for the school. And our belief is that parents and students in the Bronx deserve access to quality learning and quality education. Um, we are going to be a K through five school. Uh, every year we add a grade. So right now we are K through two. Uh, we started with about 120 young people last year. So last year was our first year of operation, which is was a crazy year. Um, but we are very um, excited about the feedback that parents and families have given us um, and given the school. I serve on the board, so I am not part of the day-to-day -day management of the school. Uh, but rather, you know, help ensure proper governance, help ensure that we're adhering to our charter. And uh, that is my role. I think it's really important that I am living in the district in which the school is located. For me, it's just very important to have local voice on the board and- And local it, uh, leadership. And local leadership. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. I think it's it's very important because a lot of the critique oftentimes is that, you know, I think 
the fear around privatization of our public goods is that oftentimes it's external folks coming in um, to, to sort of change or, or sort of bottom uh, top down approach. And so I think that co-ownership and community voices is critical to the success of the school. What gave you this idea? Did you do it with a friend? Was it a long time coming? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, education has always been very important to me and the board is com comprised of folks who are like-minded in that we believe that every child deserves the opportunity to succeed. Every child has potential and it's a matter of access to opportunity. You know, a lot of folks talk about the achievement gap, but really it's not an achievement gap, it's an opportunity gap. And so it is important to make that distinction. I cannot take credit for thinking about starting my own school. That was not on my radar. I didn't necessarily think that, I didn't know about that process, but our great uh, executive director, Andrew Folia is, you know, really uh, recruited the group that helped start the school. We went through, each one of us went through an interview process. I actually did not know anyone who I serve on the board with now but we went through an interview process. Um, he did a fantastic job making sure that all of us were just really like-minded and committed to the mission. Um, we have our vice chair who is also a school teacher in the Bronx, which is an important voice. Um, we have folks in finance. We have folks who have human capital and, and human resource experience to think about you know, onboarding and that perspective. Um, I brought a lot of the community outreach and engagement perspective. Um, we have folks in tech. So it's a hugely um, diverse and passionate board. And I think a key part of our work together and our approach is that we respectfully challenge each other. You know, I think we're very passionate about the mission. We know that we are here to serve and that we need to be intentional and thoughtful and strategic in terms of, you know, parents are, are, are trusting us, trusting a new school with their babies. We do not take that lightly. And so we're constantly thinking about how we can make sure that we are you know, governing the school in a manner that is going to ensure its sustainability and success, as well as make sure that we're staying true to the mission of, of, of ensuring that students also have a, a, a community that they feel comfortable in. And what is the ultimate goal here? Is the goal to be having 100% college admission? I mean, that was the first thing that came to my mind, but there could be a lot of different outcomes that you'd be working towards. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that we are just thinking about sort of our strategy for the long haul, but you know, we, our mission statement is that with an unwavering commitment to excellence, Bold delivers a world-class public education that equips children from all backgrounds with the academic and character foundation to succeed in college and serve as the next generation of leaders. So, so college is in that mission statement. College is in that mission statement. I think a key part of this is about, you know, how can we measure that? How can we ensure that? Let me back up and say, I think often there's a narrative around in places like the Bronx or places where there's high poverty around the idea of, you know, success is leaving and success is making it out, hmm. quote unquote. And I think 
it's not written here, but a key part of why I am proud to live in the Bronx and, and want to invest in the Bronx is because I don't want students and I don't want young people and future professionals to feel that they have to leave the Bronx in order to succeed. I think it's okay, you know, people have choice and, and choice is powerful, but I don't think that leaving the Bronx should be equated with success. And I think building a community where people can stay and stay and thrive will be important. Um, that's my personal view on, on sort of how we can continue to build a, a world-class school. But, um, success in college and leadership is an important part of our school. I'll also share that our model really has a dual focus. It's about a rigorous academic program, but it's also a based school culture where we're trying to build personal habits and mindsets for long-term success. And what that means at a young age, like kindergarten or first grade, is like really discussing what does it mean to be a good friend? What does it mean to be professional? And sort of, you know, students spend time talking about that in the classroom and with the teachers. And, and that's, what, that's what the mindset is, is part of, not just academics, but how to be a good person. This is the ultimate example of supporting local. I mean, when I think about supporting local, I think about going to the farmer's market or buying clothes from a non-franchised boutique. And you are like literally supporting local people through this educational process. It's so inspiring. Thanks, Catherine. We have a lot of long nights and late meetings, I, I bet. Uh, but it's, it is rewarding and um and, you know, this is what bringing people along is, right? Like really sharing what does that look like and trying to model um, the different ways that we can all make an impact. At the end of the day, if third graders aren't reading at reading level um, and if they aren't academically succeeding, um, then we cannot do any of this, right? So we have to keep a strict focus on, you know, the academics, we have to keep a strict focus on, you know, serving the students that have different needs. So, you know, serving students with IEPs, which is the individualized um, plan for students with disabilities or, you know, students who are English language learners. These are things that we have to keep a close eye on because our number one priority is to make sure that they get the academic focus that that we need in order to collectively succeed. And then from that, we can build out and continue to, to dream and, and build together. But right now, you know, we have cases too. Remote learning has been, has been a challenge and I have to give a lot of credit to the team working day in and day out to make sure that young people are, the young students that we serve are, you know, logging in and I mean, imagine learning how to read on an iPad, you know, it's just seeing videos and hearing about it from the team is critical. But, um, but yeah, I think we have a lot of ideas and plans about how the success can happen. But one step at a time is, is sort of how we're approaching it. Hopefully I can update you once we have a clearer sense of, of next steps. Yeah. I would love to share that with your audience and with you. Yes. Can you tell us about the diversity of the board at Bold? 
Absolutely. So I spoke a little bit about sort of um, perspective in terms of folks from different sectors. You know, I, as I said, I sort of bring the community connection, community outreach voice. We have folks in tech and we have uh, legal, real estate, finance, education. So those are sort of the sectors and that folks are coming from. And more broadly, and if folks want to take a look um, at the team, boldschools.org is the website. Um, we have a pretty diverse makeup of the board, members who identify as Black, I identify as Latina, Asian, racial makeup, gender makeup. Age is something that we are working on. I think our board skews uh, a little bit younger, I would say, but we are actually active. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if folks might uh, might have guessed that. Uh, our chair jokes a lot about how uh, we need to work on our generational diversity. So uh, maybe half of our board are parents. So I think that perspective is important. And we often sort of, as we make decisions, um, specifically with relation to like the operations of the school, um, that voice will come through and, and they'll say, hey, putting my parent hat on, I wouldn't like this or I would like that. So I think that's important. We are looking for board members who might bring more of a child development perspective. I think as we think about the transition and sort of once COVID-19 and the threat of the virus is behind us, we want to think about social, emotional support and learning, you know, going back to school might be really traumatic for a lot of students. And so we do want to think about that as the field evolves. So we are open to looking at board members and um, at recruiting new board members. And I will say that, you know, the diversity of the board is important, but the inclusiveness of the board community is important too. And thinking back to what I said before about how we all feel sort of included and we know each of us has an important voice around the table. The fact that we all know that and use that to voice our opinions, even if they may be different from one another, is important to mention when we talk about diversity. And, you know, you could have a diverse board, but if people don't feel included and people aren't speaking up and aren't putting their voice out there, that's not helpful. Yeah, it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Hmm. I would love to end with my signature question. And I'm really curious to hear your answer. <laughs> what do you know for sure? For sure, for sure. I know that there's always more to learn. And we can learn something from everyone. I think we need to approach every situation with humility and with an understanding that we don't, that there's always more to learn. And, you know, going back to supporting local and supporting communities, like listening is everything and really listening to learn um, is how we get better. And it has served me in, in, in my roles. And, and I, I just want to hold on to that. So in the spirit of education, there's, there's always more to learn. Thank you. And thank you for everything you're doing as a fellow New Yorker. I feel so good knowing that you are having these conversations and making change. Thank you for having me, Catherine. I admire Elizabeth in so many ways. Her commitment to use her privilege to help others and continue to learn for her lifetime is inspiring. I hope her message will inspire all of us to continue to learn and grow. Please be in touch. 
share what you're doing, and connect on LinkedIn or Instagram at devdebrief. Have a great week.